Hello and welcome to Bondcast, a podcast series where we discuss our views on the latest themes and events shaping rates markets. I'm Imogen Bakra, European Rate Strategist, and I'm joined today by our Global Rate Specialists, Giles Gale, Head of European Rate Strategy, Blake Gwynn, Head of Front End Rate Strategy in the Americas, and Theo Chapsalis, Head of UK Rate Strategy. Hi everyone and welcome back to another Bondcast. Um, it's been a second week really of uh, rates curves, rates yields selling off and, and curves steepening. Um, certainly being led by the US, we've seen 10-year yields um, around 25 basis higher in 2021 and the 530s curve around 20 basis points steeper, um, two of which were uh, big calls really in the year ahead for steeper curves and for higher rates so Blake I would say that's a job pretty well done wouldn't you? Yeah Imogen I'd love to you know start popping the champagne and do a victory lap here I mean we had um, tens for the year going up by about 55 basis points we had 530 steeper by about 30 basis points and we've essentially gotten half that move but I think that'd be a little disingenuous of me, mostly because, you know, we had really seen the first half of this year as being somewhat of a struggle, relatively range bound trading, some difficulty seeing any kind of sustained rise in yields, a steepening in the curve. We really had most of that price action focused in the back, back half of the year after, you know, vaccines proliferated and the economy started to return to some semblance of normal. So, so yes, we were correct on the direction, I think, but um, the way it kind of played out and how quickly it's played out has, has really been a surprise to us. Um, you, you know, compared to what we had expected back in November when we wrote that piece. So what's happened there? Why has it moved so much faster than you expected? Well, you know, I really, I think there's kind of two areas where we were really surprised or, or the things didn't really play out as expected. I mean, the first is obviously the Democrats taking Georgia. I think when, um, you know, when we had, had been writing that piece, we had still expected that the most likely outcome was that the Republicans would win at least one of those seats and maintain hold of the Senate, that McConnell would still be the majority leader and that, you know, he would use the power of that seat um, to basically slow down or, or kind of grind any Democratic agenda to, to a halt. Um, and that includes stimulus, it includes any type of infrastructure spending later this year. Um, you know, so really kind of a, a dampening uh, of any kind of fiscal expectations uh, or, or any fiscal tailwinds for the next year. Of course, that didn't happen. You know, Democrats won both the seats, um, you know, surprising markets. They have control of the Senate, House presidency now. Um, and it's pretty clear to see the impact that this has had on markets so far. You know, given most of the sell-off we've seen, um, you know, the most of that price action we mentioned up top has really come in the last week. It's really happened since that those Georgia uh, election results became known. Um, to be honest, it's it's a little bit of a surprise to us because we'd actually been somewhat skeptical that, um, you know, even if Democrats had won those Georgia seats, that this would really be, you know, a huge game changer. Um, they have control of the agenda. I mean, obviously, being in charge of the Senate will give them the ability to bring things to the floor, uh, uh, to set the scheduling, and and you know, get uh, um, nominations done, a lot of other things. But you know, they still face a real uphill battle on on the fiscal side, on the um, uh, uh, stimulus side on infrastructure spending, those kind of items, any, any kind of big legislative priorities, they're still going to face a razor thin margin. You know, they only have 50-50 with uh, Vice President Harris serving as the tiebreaker. Uh, they face a potential Republican filibuster at every turn. They might have to get 60 votes. Um, they have a couple opportunities to do things through this 
process called reconciliation that would allow them to do a simple majority. They probably have two chances to do something like that. Um, you know, so they have to pick which priorities to use those on. Um, but that's also a difficult process and, and has a lot of potential pitfalls. So we're, not only were we kind of surprised that the Democrats won both of those seats, but we were also a little bit surprised in, in how positively markets have reacted to it, given that we're still a little bit pessimistic on how much stimulus and how much fiscal tailwind is really going to come out of that. Um, the second surprise, and, and this is perhaps a bit less discreet, um, you know, it wasn't like it happened and then we saw this big price move like we did with the elections. Um, but I think it's still been in the background kind of allowing yields to rise, curves to steepen a little bit more than we had originally thought back in November. Um, and that's that the Fed's essentially been kind of throwing buckets of cold water on this idea that they were going to do an adjustment to their maturity structure uh, for, their, for their treasury purchases. When we wrote the year ahead, I think there was a pretty uh, a pretty prevalent view in the markets that the Fed was going to come in in December and start buying more longer term securities, um, which would have pushed down long term yields and, and helped to flatten the curve. Um, we didn't necessarily expect that, um, but we did think that they would be kind of in this position that they would react to any undesired or unwanted rise in yields. Um, and that having that threat of them coming in and, and pushing back against a quote unquote bad yield increase. Uh, would have really kept markets in line and would have uh, um, kind of nipped any uh, sell-off or any kind of steepening into the first half of the year in the bud because markets would have just said, hey, if yields start rising, Fed's going to come in here and, and start buying longer-term assets. Um, on that front, we weren't necessarily wrong um, in that you know, the rise we've seen so far this year is not what I would consider a quote-unquote bad rise in yields. Um, it's come along with increases in inflation expectations. It's come along with that optimism on the fiscal side. So it's not something that's driven by, you know, oversupply of treasuries or, you know, expectations of a, a, of a premature hike or anything like that. So it's not that, that the yield rise we've seen is something that we think would have prompted the Fed to act. Um, but I think what we have seen is that when the Fed didn't change their asset purchases in December, um, you know, when they came out in the minutes, when Powell spoke and, and even a slate of recent Fed speakers, what we've seen is them really kind of expressing this comfort with where yield levels have gone. Um, they've shown essentially no urgency in, in kind of delivering this uh, uh, maturity extension. And as a result, markets have basically started to, to kind of take that expectation off the table. So, you know, when you remove that threat of them coming in to do this maturity extension, um, I think that's really allowed this yield rise to happen and, and, and curves to steepen without the market immediately starting to think, okay, the Fed's gonna come in at the next meeting and, and push back against this. So, so both of those things are, I think, really where um, I would say we've been wrong uh, or, or we're wrong in that November year ahead and, and where there's really been a surprise to us with how fast yields have actually increased to, uh, to start this year. Okay, so you say we've been taken a little bit by surprise by how fast they've moved, even if we were right about the, the general direction of travel. Um, so where do you think we go from here? Does this kind of fast paced sell-off continue? Is there a, a particular event that we're looking to that might be a turning point? Do we see it slowing down? What are you thinking? Yeah, I mean, it's we're actually in a pretty crucial week here. Um, you know, just from a technical perspective, we're kind of at the top of this very long-running channel. It's 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 this kind of trend that's been in place since August, um, and we're very close to kind of breaking above those yields. And if we go through there, um, you know, pretty decisively, it's 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 hard to see kind of where markets would really find comfort uh, uh, that there would be some kind of support for the treasury market. So it could continue to fall for for. You know, quite a bit longer if we break through these levels that we're currently we're currently at. 
Um, on the other side, though, I think we kind of lean a little bit, you know, that's that's a technical perspective. We lean a little bit more fundamentally in saying that if you look at the next month or so for us, um, you know, we think this sell off is probably a little overdone and we probably pull back, um, you know, retrace some of the sell off that we've gotten to start this year. I don't think we go back to kind of those late 2019 levels, but I do think we probably end up settling into a range that's a little bit lower from where we're currently at, if not back to those 2019 levels. Um, the fundamental things we're looking at, as I already mentioned before, we're a little bit um, pessimistic on the, the fiscal side. I think the optimism's really kind of run away with itself after this Georgia election, and that as we get to the real nitty gritty of negotiating another fiscal package, and we see those battle lines being drawn and the negotiations start dragging out weeks or even months, um, we think there's gonna be a little disappointment there. Um, also, you know, don't forget that the COVID situation is still accelerating, getting a lot worse here. And, you know, the possibility of, of some type of, um, I don't want to say national lockdowns in the U.S. We don't really have the authority, the president doesn't really have the authority to do the same type of national lockdowns here that we've seen in other countries. But there are a lot of ways that a Biden administration could theoretically curb activities, um, you know, in the U.S. And, and really kind of move to make, uh, uh, to kind of slow down. Uh, uh, slow down economic act activity. So that that's a risk that we don't think's really been priced into markets yet, and something that over the next weeks, over the next weeks, uh, or, or even months, um, if we see those case counts accelerating, that's something that could start start to play out. So fundamentally, we're we're leaning, um, we're, we're you know we're leaning towards some kind of retracement, a little bit of a rally from here. But as I said, the next week's going to be pretty telling, um, you know, where we kind of end up on on that technical on that technical piece. Okay, that makes sense. So switching gears a little bit and, and thinking about Europe then Giles, where unfortunately we are all back in national lockdowns. Um, European rates have, have so far been relatively resilient to this big move that we've seen in US treasuries. Do you think that, that that's right? Well, on a certain level, yes, it is clearly. I mean, you know, something's changed in the US, which is that, you know, markets uh, are, are just updating and you know, trying to find a, a level um, given the news about the change in the political situation and the you know, possible impact that that might have on the fiscal side. Now, in Europe, obviously, we haven't had that. I mean, no, we've talked a lot about fiscal policy on these before, and obviously we think it's super important, but the background is in Europe that that's just kind of ongoing. There's no real new news in a way there. Um, now, where I don't think it's right is that, um, you know, I think to the extent that inflation expectations, um, you know, perhaps relatively far in the future, are pushing rates higher in the US, I, I'm not quite sure what it is that people think is that dramatically different about uh, about Europe. I mean, from my perspective, um, you should be talking about European inflation rising for pretty much all the same reasons, um, whether those are short term reasons, things like um, you know, there's upswing in the commodity complex that we uh, are seeing and have you know, has been ongoing for a couple of months now, a few months, I should say, um, or whether it's just you know, based on you know, sort of longer term factors. Um, you know, that's something that we think is uh, is key and in the background and, and also changing as well, um, or whether you just think it's to do with economic recovery. So you know, we've seen that a little bit start to move in, in European break-even inflation. So inflation expectations in that little corner of the market have been picking up um, you know, with a fair lag to what we've seen in the US. But nonetheless, um, you know, I'd say that there are some signs of life there. But 
nominal markets really seem very much under the thumb, I suppose, enthralled to the ECB and just this pessimism that um, you know, the, the ECB is just you know, has this market kind of by the scruff of the neck. I mean, you know, a little bit shorter term, we've had um, a lot of evidence of you know, cash on the sidelines, um, you know, perhaps not put, put to work in the last part of last year that's been coming out to meet the supply that we have seen the usual glut of at the start of the year. Um, and so, you know, I suppose that that's maybe, uh, yeah, the background consideration just uh, just for the short term. And it seems like the found, the found, the foundation for demand is pretty strong in any case. Okay, so our big call um, in the year ahead in European rates was that we were very um, bearish um, core rates. Um, so now, uh, mid January, we've seen a big big sell-off in treasuries and, and not quite so much in bonds. Are we still bearish? Do we still still think that higher in yield is, is the direction of travel for European rates? Yes, absolutely. And listen, I think that um, you know, something that I should try to remember, I'll make a mental note to always repeat it and, and until such time goes as it changes. Um, European rates are really priced for disaster still. And I don't think that that's what's going to be the dominant theme of this of this year. And of course, you know, we're in week two and you know, we have lots and lots of sort of fairly pessimistic sounding um, COVID headlines still still coming through. But, you know, I think that overall this is going to be a year of recovery. And, you know, I think that the market can actually ship quite a lot of bad news on on the COVID side in the short term i think it's already incorporated quite a lot and um you know, i think that you know we one of the things we talked quite a bit about is the the resilience to it you know, that's sort of built into all western economies to be honest with you including uh, the euro area and you know every time we uh, you know we're, we're allowed out again <clears throat> it seems like the economy bounces back a little bit more strongly than people had you know perhaps expected and you know, i think that as things progress and we're entering, you know, sort of warmer weather and vaccination programs are um, are progressing, you know, <clears throat> even if a little bit, you know, behind where we would have liked them to have been. I think that you know we will see optimism starting to um, starting to return. So yeah, I think you know that is an important part. But I, and I just want to make one final point on this is that I think there's a, a cross-border dimension as well. And you know, I think that we should have sold off more, uh, perhaps in sympathy with um, with, with the US. Um, US fixed income looks really attractive to European investors and international investors alike. I think that there's a risk that Europe, US corporations actually start funding in European markets and you know, just swapping that uh, that cash back. And that could add a little bit to the supply pressure as well. Um, you know, so I think that there are a lot of things all pushing in the same sort of direction uh, that you know, can really come to the fore in this year. Okay, perfect. Well, you've saved me a job because answered what was going to be my last question about um, our US versus Europe view that, that we put in the year ahead. So um, thank you for that. <laughs> so with that, I guess we can move on to the UK. Um, Theo, we have seen guilt so often in recent sessions, I guess, in, in sympathy with the move that we've seen in the US. Um, does this provide better entry points, do you think, for now being long guilts or, or would you still prefer to wait here? 
Yeah, I think this is this is a key question. So first of all, um, gilts uh, in the UK market is the only market where we have been uh, long in the 2021 year ahead. And that is a high conviction call. It's a strong call to be long the back end of the curve, 30-year conventional and real rates. Um, when we take a look at the last uh, two months, basically what we see is yields that have substantially outperformed peers in December. Um, so gills have done really, really well, uh, and they've given up some of the gains in January, uh, right? So the, um, the move in the US uh, clearly did impact the UK, uh, and gild yields followed more than, uh, than bonds. Now, to your question, uh, the sell-off. Is this an opportunity? Uh, we think that we are very close to that, very close to setting up a structural long opportunity in the UK market. Uh, on the 13th of January, uh, it's, it's basically coupon money that is being paid and does provide some support. And actually, on the 22nd of January, we've got around 3 billion of gilts. So it is this coupon money being paid. So we talk about significant money that does support the market. But at the same time, we've got also a syndication on most likely on the 19th of January. So this additional supply, I think, will provide uh, an opportune moment to go long. As things stand, the momentum is probably for gilt yields still to cheapen simply because of the cross-market argument. And this is something that Giles mentioned, and he looks at U.S. fixed income and compares that to European fixed income. And, well, I compare that also to the U.K. We've got Brexit, but we still consider ourselves European. So what we see is that guild yields also relative to U.S. yields uh, seem to be low uh, at this stage. So I would expect basically the tactical guys to be selling the U.K. curve still. But I think that this indication will provide um, an opportune moment. And, and the reason is really because the UK market uh, will be structurally uh, in a more challenging situation. We have seen that uh, the UK has become the fifth uh, greatest country or the fifth country with most cases of COVID. So I don't know whether we can use the word great in that case. Probably it's it's wrong, I would say. So, but it's the fifth country in terms of COVID cases. So this is significant, which means that basically the the potential for lockdown is 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 fairly severe, which means a disruption to the economy, which means that there are structural reasons to be long gilts. We need to add to that the QE, the ongoing QE, which is very much supportive for the back end of the curve, and at the same time demand from from uh, LDI investors. So if you if you take all those points then we've got a very supportive case for guilt, but probably this is something that we should, um, that sh we should do later, um, later uh, in, in, in the next weeks. And I think one, one point that I wanted to mention, uh, Imogen, because we've discussed about the US, we've discussed about everything, but it's, 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 it's inflation, right? So inflation is something that uh, probably it's, 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 it's worth bringing up. And I think what I find particularly interesting is what is going on in, um, in, in, in global markets and especially, you know, the, the U.S. and especially the, the front end of the curve. So this is also a part where we think that, you know, it is a sector that has been um, cheap for years and, and, and it is the part of the curve that really moved the most relative to uh, everything else. So this is, I think, quite a big theme that it's not just inflation expectations. It's also at the same time support at the front end of the U.S. Uh, inflation curve. Okay, great. Thanks, Leah. I think um, that's a good place to wrap this up for this 
Um, it's been another very, uh, well, interesting week, I'd say, in rates markets uh, and uh, felt like a and to kind of mark to market our year ahead views. I hope that, not that we will do this at the end of the year, but I hope that if we do, then we can be just as right then as well. <laughs> um, thanks everyone, speak next week. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Bondcast. Please do subscribe to our channel to get future episodes and like it as this will help others to find it. We also encourage you to follow us on social media to get all our latest content. Speak to you again soon.